Hi everybody, this is Dr. Kelly, and today uh, we're going to be talking about menageries and circuses, and also a lot about P.T. Barnum, so uh, make sure you got the, uh, the PowerPoint opened up for Moodle, and we will get started. So when we're talking about menageries and circuses, I, I, I was trying to think of something that is a good pre-Civil War, kind of concurrent with the Civil War, um, form of pop culture to talk about. Remember, a lot of this class is taking place after the Civil War, but I wanted to give you a little something that is that is pre-Civil War. So I figured, uh, and plus P.T. Barnum is a very important figure when you're just talking about uh, American culture, what, you know, what makes something American as opposed to other forms. Uh, first thing we're going to talk about is menageries. Uh, the menagerie, like I said, both these things, both menageries and circuses, are fairly old type of shows. They've been around for a very long time. Uh, they do get new life in the mid-19th century, um, mostly in Europe, but when they come to America, they kind of get American. So that's what we're going to be talking about. And this new form uh, that comes about in the mid-19th century is very based upon European values, uh, specifically imperialism, which we're going to talk about. Now, the idea of traveling exhibitions of animals, which is what a menagerie is, a menagerie in its most basic form is an is a exposition of animals, basically showing off you know, animals from all over the place, that's a fairly old idea. Uh, the Roman Empire, in particular, was very keen upon them. Uh, it was not unusual at all for emperors to have um, exotic animals for pets. Likewise, in the Colosseum, uh, animal fights were the most form in common, were the most common form of uh, entertainment. Uh, you know, most gladiator fights were not with each other. Uh, they were mainly fighting against animals, kind of these hunts that they would do. Uh, hunts were usually in the morning. Uh, a gladiator fighting to the death with another gladiator was actually quite rare, quite, quite rare. Uh, however, doing this with against animals, fairly common. Uh, it's not just on the Roman Empire. I mean, you know, China has all sorts of things where, the, you know, the emperor would keep all sorts of interesting animals, exotic animals, just to show how, um, you know, affluent, how rich he was, his power. Um, royalty from pretty much all over would do this. This is not just a, a European thing or an Asian thing. You know, Africa has this as well. Pretty much, Native Americans even have it a little bit, I mean, from what evidence we have. The idea of basically, you know, somebody who's rich, somebody who's powerful, a king or something, you know, having their fancy animals just to show their affluence, their reach, you know, how wealthy they are, how, how they're able to keep up with this sort of thing. So that itself is pretty old. It does change, however, when we get into imperialism. Uh, pretty much with imperialism. With imperialism, that's when like countries in Europe start taking over um, places in Asia and Africa and other places over the world. You could argue the United States as well, North America as well. That's a fairly solid argument, actually. Uh, no longer is the individual who gets the glory, but it's for the glory as the state of a, as a whole. You know, the earlier sh showings of these, you know, having exotic animals was mainly about the individual's wealth and affluence. Now it's kind of used to promote civic pride. Um, you know, kind of reinforce that, hey, look how great our country is. Um, you know, let away, let, you know, countrymen see how they're, how rich and powerful their country is. You know, you know, Englishmen living in Birmingham or, um, you know, Blackpool or something could see, you know, oh my gosh, you know, I've never been to India, but here's some animals from India. And, and it gives me civic pride because look how powerful our country is. We can bring in these wacky animals. So it's not just the individual. It's now the country as a whole. 
you know, this it's it, but it's a two way street. It's not just to let you know give the individual members of the country pride. It's also to kind of reinforce this uh, the country as a whole. You know, kind of reinforce ideas of power and structure. The idea that you know they're able to like conquer and they're able to control these large, exotic, you know, dangerous looking animals. Kind of a reinforcement, also telling the populace, hey, don't rock the boat. You know, don't uh, rebel too much. Don't don't question us too much. You know, we've got we've got all sorts of things like this. Um, as I said, this had been seen um, in the Roman gladiatorial games, but but a new level of sophistication came with imperialism. All right, with, with the Roman Empire, they they showed you know their reach, like when they brought in African animals, you know, giraffes or rhinoceroses or whatever to fight. Uh, but now proving to be the most savage or strongest is not enough. You know, the Roman Empire it was all about like strength. Yeah, they believe they're the most refined people as well. But you have a new, this new emphasis upon refinement, upon sophistication. It's not enough to be the most savage or the strongest. Now you have to be the most respectable, the most restrained, the most um, intellectually damaging, you know, most cunning, that sort of thing. Uh, Imperialism, particularly in England, particularly in Europe, is really iterating, you know, we're the strongest country, not because we're, we just have brute force, we have cunning, we have things like that. And as such, a lot of these European menageries were not really interested in killing the animals, but were showing them off. This is a big uh, contrast to the ancient Romans, which is pretty much, hey, watch us kill this animal, now it's, hey, look how we can, you know, keep this uh, animal up. And it's also used to reaffirm the good attributes of imperialism. Remember, imperialism is something that has a lot of nasty underside. You know, um, <laughs> it's kind of like the uh, you know the English or the French who ever being like, yes, we killed globs of people and we chopped off their hands. Uh, that's Belgium for you, and the, the Belgian Congo chopping off hands. But but look, we have giraffes. You know, it's basically saying yes, we've done brutal things, but we're getting something good out of them. Now, the modern menagerie as we know it, uh, the one in England who's most responsible for the modern form of the menagerie is a guy by the name of George Wombwell. Uh, Wombwell kind of works around England in the early 19th century, so the early 1800s. Um, he brings in all sorts of different African animals. He's most synonymous with the lion. He's the one who really champions the idea of the lion as this kind of very strong, powerful animal. I mean, yes, it is a very strong and powerful animal. But the idea that it's associated with, like, you know, um, European royalty. Uh, if you go to England, and I'd recommend you go to England or Europe at some point in time, or just travel. Man, just travel anywhere. Get, get out of America at some point. Just see the world. A lot in England, you're going to see the lion, you know, these little statues and things like that of lions, which I know the lion is an older regal symbol in England with some of their older coat of arm. But in the early, 18th, early 19th century, once you get into the Victorian age, you know, because of the popularity of Wombwell and his lions, this really pushes the idea, and you still start seeing this all over England, not just in royal places. You know, the, the English lion, that sort of thing. Uh, this this causes a great deal of interest in crowds. Um, he also is dovetailing very nicely with the idea of scientific research, classification, uh, the idea that, you know, we're now start, uh, studying zoology as a more strict science. We're classifying animals by, like, phylum and family and things like that. Uh, so he, he really promotes this as a not just a civic thing, not just an imperialistic country thing, but also a scientific thing. You know, he, he could be like, oh, look at, look at this lion. In fact, a lot of times he would do um, tours of lion as just like a 
intellectual, you know, educational thing. You can look at a lion. Uh, not only that, he could tour with a lion until it died, and then uh, once the lion died, he'd be like, hey, uh, see, a, a dead lion. You know, you can get closer to a lion. And then at, after that, he would sell the corpse for a sci- to its scientific institute for uh, dissection and taxidermy. So he's getting a lot of money out of his lions. Now, to be fair, uh, not to be fair, but to be honest, if you go over one slide, you're going to see something he did with his lions that got a lot of controversy that kind of undermined some of his more high and lofty goals. Um, he engaged in lion baiting. Uh, whenever basically the lions weren't selling too well, whenever people just didn't want to you know, watch a lion behind a cage, he would start lion baiting. Uh, lion baiting is very akin to bear baiting which we talked about um, last class, uh, basically getting dogs and basically getting the lion to attack them and see, you know, basically to prove how ferocious the lion is. Um, unlike bear baiting, which sometimes the dog would win, um, dogs never win at lion baiting. It's pretty bad. Uh, that did get a lot of public criticism. Um, basically, it wasn't really a fair fight. It kind of undermines his, his lofty ideals. Uh, the public does want to be entertained, but only in the quote-unquote right sort of entertainment. And you're starting to see this a bit more. The idea that the general public, you know, you ha- if you're ca- catering to a wide general public audience, you know, pop culture, it has to be to certain elements. There are some things that even though there might be of interest to people, you don't want to show. It might be uncouth. It's uncivilized. You know, watching a lion tear um, you know, dogs apart. I mean, I guess that, you know, bloodlust might be something that goes across everybody, but you don't want to necessarily be interested in it. Now, in time, these menageries make their way to America. Um, America does lag behind uh, Europe in terms of imperialism. Uh, before the Civil War, America is really not doing any uh, imperialism across the ocean, unlike Europe. Uh, still, there's very big sense of novelty in this. You know, the idea that, hey, we're going to look at an animal, it's going to be neat. Uh, this is also during the time where a traveling lecturer could make a very good killing within the United States. Um, traveling lecturers were people who just, like, gave talks. Um, they'd go from town to town. Some of them were religious, but some of them were just, like, scientific. Some of them were just, like, you know, their, their studies. Kind of like the Shakespeare stuff, which you listened to, well, you read about. Uh, where basically, you know, these traveling actors would go to town to town giving Shakespeare recitals. You'd have these traveling lecturers. You know, it's like, you know, um, you know, Dr. So-and-so is going to come in and talk about the parts of a pig. And, and you'd have a packed house. Uh, partially, it's because um, people don't have a lot to do and they're interested. Other parts of it is there might be limited educational opportunities. There's a chance to, you know, see something that's educational. This sort of thing. Now, those menageries exist in the United States primarily before the Civil War. Uh, for fairly obvious reasons, the Civil War really puts a damper on the whole menagerie um, business. The whole menagerie economy kind of tanks during the Civil War for, for, I would say, fairly obvious reasons. Now, the thing with menageries, uh, although menageries are fairly popular, uh, they have the problem of limited appeal. Frankly, there's only so many animals you could see at a menagerie. I mean, only cer- certain animals, like, travel well. Likewise, once you see one lion, you've, you've kind of seen them all. I mean, nothing against lions if you... I mean, I hope nobody here has a pet lion. But, you know, I mean, if you can't really get too close to the lion, and the lion might be kind of drugged up or not too healthy, 
In fact, that's the problem with a lot of these, you know, exotic animals coming in is the fact that this is not their home climate. This is not their natural habitat. Uh, they're never very healthy in this time period, especially if you're in a tiny little cage. You might be drugged up to keep you, if you're a lion, to keep you docile. Uh, they're never very healthy animals. Likewise, they're never very active. A lot of them were depressed or just kind of out of it. So after the Civil War, most menageries never really come back. Just the idea of a traveling animal exhibit never really comes back. Uh, those that do exist have to broaden their appeal. And a lot of times, as we see, we're you're going to see what goes with that. Uh, let's talk about circuses for a second. Uh, if we're this is also a very, very, very old concept. It too dates uh, to the Roman times. In fact, our term circus uh, comes from Latin. It literally means circle. So, like, if you go to England and go to Piccadilly Circus, it, it's not really circus. There's no clowns or acrobats or anything. Um, it's just a circle. It's a, it's a traffic circle in, in downtown London. But, like, think of the Circus Maximus. The Circus Maximus is where they had... Um, you know, horse races in London, in uh, not London, oh my god, ancient Rome, uh, it literally means big circle, you know, huge circle, the big circle. Uh, by the time we get to the 19th century, though, uh, the term circus, um, which also was kind of around in Roman times a little bit, sort of, kind of, but really once you get to the 19th century, uh, the term circus implied human acts, all right? Circus is in this time period, if you go over one, you're going to see the picture um, of, a, of a classic circus, it is all human. It is all human. So think of things like acrobats, uh, type rope walkers, uh, trapeze artists, clowns. Um, also might include some equestrian acts, but these animals are domesticated. And it's mainly about the horse, uh, the riders doing tricks. Uh, not so much about the horses themselves doing anything special. It's more about the rider, uh, you know, standing on top of the horse, jumping over hoops, that trick riding, things like that. It's more about the rider than it is the horse. So, classically speaking, circuses involve human acts of skill, and if there are horses, uh, it's basically the riders, not necessarily the horse. Uh, they are of middling popularity within Europe. Um, menageries tend to be a bit more popular. They do have a decent crowd within Europe. I'm not, I'm not doubting that. Uh, various places in Europe, the idea of the circus is fairly popular. Uh, clowns, as we know them, come from Italy, uh, kind of the Comedia dell'arte. Uh, that, that's your classic clowns, so that kind of comes around too. Uh, the first circuses come to America in the early 19th century, and they follow in the early 19th century, like I said, and they really follow the European model. Uh, human acts, acts of skill, acts of, you know, basically celebrating the human form, uh, human achievement. Um, human skill is what they're really champion here. Not so much anything exotic, not so much anything about imperialism. Uh, very little exoticism with the circuits in this time period. It's more about athletic endeavors, they, you know, strongmen, things like that. Uh, this is opposed to something like the freak show. Uh, the freak show celebrates the human body as something weird. We're going to talk about the freak show in a little bit. Uh, that's almost like a menagerie of humans where basically you come to see weird looking people. Um, the classic circus is something where you come to see humans act, um, you know, of skill. Now, they really get their boost in 1871 when P.T. Barnum mixes the idea of a menagerie and a circus into one big old American concoction. And that's who we're going to be focusing upon today is P.T. Barnum, Phineas Taylor Barnum. Um, 
His quote, you need to know, is a sucker is born every minute. That pretty much encapsulates everything about P.T. Barnum. Uh, his whole kind of philosophy is the idea that he is going to make some money kind of by hoodwinking people, but be charming about it. Not too different from a con man, but, well, we'll talk about that. Um, P.T. Barnum, Phineas, Phineas Taylor Barnum, he is born in Connecticut in 1810. Uh, very middle-class existence. Uh, his father is an innkeeper, pretty middle-class. Um, his maternal grandfather, however, so his, his mom's father, was a bit of a scoundrel, a bit of a schemer, you know, a bit of somebody who's like kind of coming up with get-rich-quick schemes, um, selling concoctions, um, early forms of snake oil, that sort of thing. But his grandfather's also a politician. And I bet some of you are wondering, well, that doesn't seem too different, a scammy politician? Well, that's kind of an American thing, but it really comes to play in this time period. And I want you to see here is this kind of this interplay, a kind of this kind of very American backing with Barnum. And it's the idea that a schemer can be somewhat respectable. You know, somebody who's just hawking stuff, somebody who's just selling things, that could be a respectable job within America, and somebody could create their own path in life. Uh, in places like Europe, that's very much a charlatan thing. Uh, that's not a high-class existence. You know, if you're doing schemes, constantly trying to get rich and things like that, um, even though you may or may not get wealthy, it's still seen as a low-class identity. Remember, in Europe, class and money are not necessarily synonymous. But in America, eh, there's a bit more of an open slate. You might be able to do that. So, you know, young Phineas Taylor Barnum, he kind of hears stories of his grandfather, maybe gets around his grandfather a little bit, really gets entrenched by it, uh, kind of resists the traditional, you know, New England, uh, you know, good Protestant work ethic, you know, work really hard like his father, have a nice middle-class existence. Uh, Taylor, you know, Taylor Barnum, his middle name's Taylor, Phineas Taylor Barnum, uh, P.T. Barnum, really wants to get wealthy. He really starts running some kind of basic scams. Uh, his earliest one is a lottery. Uh, lotteries in this time period are fairly common schemes. Uh, they are not regulated. Uh, it is not a regulated lottery. Basically, you, you sell people tickets, and then they may or may not have a legitimate shot of winning money. Uh, spoiler alert, it's, it's very not legitimate. It's <laughs> not legitimate at all. Um, later on, the Louisiana lottery would be um, pretty much taken down by the federal government in violation of the interstate commerce um, basically violating interstate commerce because it was a giant scheme and the only people who won were family members of the employees of the lottery who promptly gave the money back to the lottery. It was just a giant money scheme. But still, Barnum runs his own little lottery. It's actually, you know, of middling success. Uh, however, at the same time, he's also starting a lot of different businesses. He does a general store, kind of getting off his father with that. Um, gets really involved in real estate speculation. That's another very American uh, way to get rich is through real estate speculation. Uh, in real estate speculation, you don't necessarily do anything with the land. You just buy the land and hold on to it until somebody else buys it for a lot more money. Somebody else does it. That's a very American thing to do. Now, it really gets P.T. Barnum his start really in the show business. He's still a young man. He's only 25 years old in this time period. Is in 1835, he buys an elderly slave by the name of Joyce Heff. Um, remember, he is in Connecticut. Uh, Connecticut doesn't have a ton of slaves, but 
slavery exists in pretty much every part of the United States. Uh, may not be a lot of slaves. May not be a lot of agriculture in places like Connecticut or Boston or wherever. But there are some slaves. Now, Joyce Heff is not your most um, able-bodied individual. She's very, very old. She's actually in her 80s. And he gets his slave, and he's like, you know, I really can't work. You know, she really can't work for me. How I, how am I going to make money off of this slave? How am I going to make money off a person who is blind, very sick, and in her 80s at some point? Well, P.T. Barnum makes up a story. He says that she's not just a really old person. She's, she's 160 years old. She says she's 160 years old. Not only that. She's George Washington's wet nurse. You know, George Washington, the great president who died like 40 years before this, almost 45 years before this, the father of our country, Mr. 1776. You know, George Washington, when he was a baby, this was his wet nurse. Making up all sorts of stories, which are just too, too unbelievable to be true. But if you want to come see George Washington's wet nurse, if you want to see a 160-year-old woman, why, just come on down and pay up. And this actually works. Pretty much P.T. Garnum gets his start by showing a slave, a very old sick slave, and I feel bad for her, honestly, uh, off. You know, you see that little ad right there. She's the greatest national and national PRS in the world. Joyce Heff. Nurse of George Washington, father of a country, will be seen at Barnum's Hotel, Bridgeport. Basically, he's advertising his hotel. He's trying to get people to come into his hotel. Says that she'll be there on Friday and Saturdays. Come on down, pay money to see this old lady. Now, aside from the efficacy of this, um, there might be a problem with having this sort of thing. And that's that it can't last too long because about a year later, Joyce Heth dies, which you would think that would, you know, that would kill the golden goose, wouldn't it? You know, you can't make money off of that. Well, you're not P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum sells tickets to her autopsy. He makes her autopsy an event. He's like, don't you want to see the autopsy of a 160-year-old woman? Um, I feel really bad for Joyce Heth because this is, this is horrible. And the next year, he adds more human acts. All right? He's like, wow, people paid a lot of money for Joyce Heff. Let me find some other things I could bring in. And then you have, like, you know, he kind of gets more traditional circus acts, that sort of thing. Uh, not only that, he kind of revamps this whole shtick. Uh, he opens up a building in, um, in, in New York City, which is called the Grand Scientific and Musical Theater. Or basically makes a whole place of this. Basically a whole room, a whole show of this sort of junk. Pretty much it's a theater, all right? It's a theater where audiences come in, pay some money, and then watch a, a two-hour show of random crap. You know, there might be some old people. There might be some, you know, some juggling acts. There might be some curiosities. That sort of shtick. And basically that's his whole thing. He's advertising it. He's blowing it up. It's based in New York City. It gets quite popular. In fact, it gets so popular in 1841, he purchases a building on Broadway 
And it's not just a theater, it's, it's a museum. He calls it Barnum's American Museum. Uh, keeps up the idea that it's a science thing. He, he's really big on this idea that it's science. You know, I'm going to be talking about scientific wonder. Uh, it's ongoing exhibits. It's not just a two-hour show. It's this giant theater, not theater, sorry, giant museum that audiences could explore at their own leisure. Um, super kitschy stuff. You got like a lot of models, miniature models of famous cities, famous battles, uh, stuffed animals like taxidermied animals, not just like teddy bears, which aren't around yet, actually. Uh, just, you know, taxidermied animals. Uh, a couple freaks. We're talking about freaks a little bit. This whole shtick. Just kind of a place, kind of like one of those Ripley's Believe It or Not museums you might have seen. Um, if you've ever been to a place like uh, Pigeon Forge or, uh, oh, what is that place? Um, Myrtle Beach, you know, anywhere that's kind of a tourist trap, um, you know, the Corn Palace in South Dakota, any of these places where it's like, you know, they advertise on the roadside, like, hey, come see the world's largest ball of twine. And, you know, you see the ball of twine, but there's other crap around there, too. I, I hate the word they use the word crap, but it's just stuff. It's just Americana stuff. That is what P.T. Barnum is doing here. He is making a giant exhibit hall. Of just random stuff. Now he really, really gets a lot of attention. Kind of his biggest uh, coup is in 1842 with the Fiji mermaid. All right, the Fiji mermaid. He spells it F E E J E E, but it's Fiji, like you know, F I G A I. Um, the Fiji mermaid. He claims it is evidence of a mermaid. It's like, wow, we got a skeleton of a mermaid. This proves that, you know, uh, mermaids exist. Now, if you see the picture, it looks kind of terrifying. Um, it's clearly just a, a monkey and a fish skeleton kind of fused together. Uh, they kind of, it's just a taxidermy thing, kind of like a jackalope or something. Pretty much they literally sewed a, a, a monkey skeleton and a fish skeleton together. Uh, still, P.T. claims that, nope, this is evidence of mermaids, and if you come in, you can see evidence of it. And, you know, you know, come in, look at this. If you look at the, the Fiji mermaid, if you go to Google, uh, the actual one doesn't really exist anymore, but they have other examples of it. It looks really unfortunate. I feel pretty bad for them, honestly. Um, I feel bad for the monkeys and the fish, too, I suppose. Uh, it's clearly a hoax, but Barnum claims he's not really lying to his patrons. He claims he's attracting them, and he's giving their money's worth for the show. It doesn't matter if it's real or not. His whole shtick is, you know what, if you're entertained, it doesn't matter if it's real or not. This becomes paramount to American society and American culture. This idea that it doesn't matter if it's real or not, it just matters if you're entertained. You know, you come in, he calls this humbug. He calls this humbug. He's like, you know what, Americans love a good humbug. It, it's something which is probably a lie, but you know it's a lie, and you go along with it. Um, in class, I would, you know, whenever we discuss this, I would highly suggest you think of some examples of humbug, of something you know is a lie, but you know what, you kind of go along with it. You just kind of accept that this alternate reality is something that it is. Um... You know, how about um, going to the mall to see Santa Claus? Like, 
Well, okay, that's a bad example because some kids might think it's a real Santa Claus. Oh, okay, even better, even better. If you go to Disney World, if you go to Disney World, I swear, we're going to talk about Disney a lot this class. But if you go to Disney World and see Mickey Mouse, like, you know that's not the Mickey Mouse. Like, if, even if you're a kid, you know that's not the Mickey Mouse from the cartoons because, like, the Mickey Mouse in the cartoons is a cartoon. And this is just clearly a, a person in a suit. But you, you, you kind of accept it. You're like, you know what? This is, this is something fun, you know? Uh, I, I can go along with this. You know, if, if you see a mascot, if, if you see Colonel Tilly walking around, uh, you don't think, oh, my God, that's the real Colonel Tilly. You think, oh, that's, that's a dude in a suit. I, you know, I might have sociology with him. That's where Barnum lives. Barnum's like, you know what? It doesn't matter if it's real or not. It just matters if you had a good time. You know, if, if you feel you got your quarter's work worth looking at this Fiji, Fiji mermaid, and just maybe it made you believe that mermaids might be real, you know what? It's worth it. Um, he follows the Fiji mermaid with a live act, uh, General Tom Thumb, who is just a little person. In fact, he's a child. Uh, whenever P.T. Barnum, he doesn't buy him, but whenever he hires him, uh, Tom Thumb, which is not his real name, his real name is, doesn't matter because Barnum says it's uh, Tom Thumb. In fact, this is a relative of Barnum's. This is Barnum's distant cousin. Um, at the time, he's actually only four or five years old. That doesn't matter to P.T. Barnum. He claims he's 11. He's like this little, little person who's only four or five years old. Nope, actually 11. He's only like two feet tall. He'll never grow taller. In time, he does get taller. Uh, in time, um, Barnum gives him the label of general. He's like, nope, this is General Tom Thumb. This is my whole shtick. You know, he, he's a general. I don't know why he gives the name general. I guess to make him more respectable. Um, in time, you know, I mean, he, Tom Thumb is with, General Tom Thumb is with Barnum for forever. Um, later he gets married to another little person. They have a whole little person wedding ceremony. You can see it right there. There's a picture of the little person wedding ceremony with P.T. Barnum happily smiling in the background. Uh, Barnum sold tickets to this thing. He's making money pretty much off the fact that this little guy's little. And to be fair to Barnum and Tom Thumb, um, Tom Thumb kind of has a decent life. He has a lot more job opportunities and makes a lot more money touring with Barnum than he does otherwise. And uh, we'll talk about that later when we get into Freaks. Now, ultimately, uh, Barnum will try his hand at respectability. A lot of this comes in 1844, which, remember, this is all happening fairly quickly. In 1844, he tours uh, Europe. Through 1844 and 1845, he tours Europe, uh, meets Queen Victoria. Uh, he also meets with the Tsar of Russia, which opens up all sorts of doors in America. You know, kind of showing that, hey, this is, this, is, this is American stuff. This is what we need to look at. You know, this is showing that America could be a place of curiosity and something for the uh, Europeans to look at. Also, the fact that he meets with the Tsar and the Queen of England really gives him a lot of credibility. Uh, really makes it something that he you know, makes a ton of money off of. You know, because if the Queen of England wants to see this show, if the Queen of England is curious by Barnum's curiosities, well, why shouldn't you? Um, he also kind of moves towards respectability with uh, Jenny Lynn. Uh, that's uh, her picture there in 1850. Uh, she is a Swedish soprano, the Swedish songbird, some called her. She's quite popular. Uh, she is a classic singer, a classic opera singer, well, and kind of classic, uh, you know, pop music of the time period. 
Uh, offers her a ton of money, like a ton of money. Uh, he wants respectability, saying, like, hey, here's this classically trained singer I'm going to bring in. Uh, she gets a ton of money, too. It's a pretty big draw. Gets him a lot more play. It shows, hey, maybe he's not just a huckster. Maybe he's somebody who's making all sorts of great things. Additionally, he gets really big into temperance. And I mean really big into temperance. Uh, temperance is no drinking, uh, anti-alcohol. Uh, he, he's like, you know what, drinking is a, is a blight on society. He's not the only one. Temperance unions, even before, actually long before abolition, uh, the idea of getting rid of alcohol in the United States is a pretty big deal. Before the Civil, it gets bigger after the Civil War. But even before the Civil War, Barnum is really pushing this. Really advocating for uh, prohibition. Uh, he, he builds a new theater, which he calls the Moral Lecture Room. I just love that name. The Moral Lecture Room. Uh, the guy who is, you know, champion all this humbug and hoaxes and, you know, jackalopes and Fiji mermaids. And, you know, this little person is four years old, but he's going to claim he's, you know, a general who's, you know, 16 or whatever. Gets him married, all sorts of shtick. Um, in the moral lecture room, they do uh, morality tales, like uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, he starts really promoting Shakespeare, which kind of dovetails very nicely to that thing you read about Shakespeare. You know, the idea that Shakespeare is morality, Shakespeare is high class. But all these things are moral, are very watered down and also really full of the shenanigans you might expect from a huckster. You know, he, he just can't get rid of it. He can't completely play it straight. You know, saying things are the biggest or the greatest or bigger than they might actually be, kind of drawing the crowds. He can't stop it. Now, although he's happy to use hoaxes for promotional materials, he does draw the line at spiritualist. Uh, spiritualists are very, 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 ad 20, very common in this time period. Uh, the idea of a spiritualist is somebody who communicates with the dead. Um, you know, seers, fortune tellers, tarot carpenters, that sort of thing. Uh, there are a lot of different things that people do in this time period really to exploit the fact that people want to talk to dead loved ones. And also people are kind of interested about the great beyond. Uh, a lot of trickery. You know, some might claim to be religious, but in general, it is just trickery. And it's just, you know, doing these seances and stuff like that. Uh, so he feels that they're defrauding people who are otherwise vulnerable, which is interesting that he's made a career off of tricking people into spending their money. But he's like, but at least I didn't give them false hope, but he made them believe that mermaids are real and they're little person generals and stuff like that. Um, at his moral lecture room, he also starts doing things like trying to show the tricks of seances and stuff like that. Uh, many years later, Harry Houdini, the, the great magician, escape artist, would do the same, of basically trying to show people what is up with this, uh, why are, you know, seances fake, don't get um, false hope from this. Now, the problem that, uh, you know, this is going okay for Barnum, he's pretty successful, problem is the PT Barnum is dealing with is the Civil War. Now, the Civil War is a pretty big deal. Um, it kind of ruins some things for Barnum. However, he is based in New York City, which doesn't have that much of the fighting in it. So he's able to keep up the show a little bit. Uh, what he does do during this time period is really, really, really push unionist stuff. He really pushes uh, pro-union, 
Remember, he's not necessarily against slavery. I mean, he claims to be, well, he's owned slaves in the past, but he claims to be more pro-union, which actually upsets some people. Even in New York City, I mean, some of the biggest riots of the Civil War, like the New York draft riots, happened in New York. So don't think like, oh, everybody in the South is for, you know, getting rid of the Union. Everybody in the North is okay with the Union. It's actually a little bit more complex. This does upset a lot of folks. However, it is New York City. Now, to help him out in this time period, he gets a new act, which is kind of interesting. Uh, Chang and Ng Bunker. Uh, they are conjoined twins who had retired in the past, not with Barnum. Uh, in the past, they traveled. Uh, they were uh, conjoined twins who were joined at the chest. Uh, their parents were originally from Thailand, um, which was called Siam in the time period. If you've ever heard the term Siamese twins uh, for conjoined twins, it comes from the bunkers. Uh, Chang and Ng Bunker were basically conjoined twins. They were joined at the ch chest. They had toured, however, they, by, by the time of the Civil War, they had retired, but they needed money. Why do they need money? Well, <laughs> they had 21 children, and I bet you're wondering, what? Yes, indeed. The Bunkers got married to different women. They, they, I believe they married sisters, so they had you know one wife apiece. They were each married, and between the two of them, they made 21 children. I'm not going to think too hard about how they made those 21 children, but they made 21 children. If you have 21 kids, you need money. <laughs> and they needed it desperately. Also, an ironic thing about the Bunkers, uh, they are Confederate sympathizers. They actually own a plantation, and they own slaves. So even during the Civil War, when they are actually like pro-slavery and pro uh, the Confederacy, they're doing Barnum's show because they need the money. And after the Civil War, they need the money. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, in 1865, at, oh yeah, one more thing I want to say about the Bunkers. Uh, the, they do die fairly close to each other. Uh, however, they die a week apart, which is, it, that's also something I don't want to think too hard about. The fact that one brother lived for a week with his dead brother, conjoined to him. Now, once one brother died, it was fairly clear the other one was going to die because I shared organs, but still, oy. Now, in 1865, uh, probably due to the Civil War, probably due to some of Barnum's outspoken tendencies about the Union, uh, the Barnum's theaters burn. Uh, Barnum's theaters burn. Uh, by this time, Barnum's in his 50s. You know, he's like, okay, maybe I've done my thing, that sort of shtick. Um, so he, he kind of lays low for a little bit, but he's still P.T. Barnum. You know, he's still the huckster. He's still the salesman. He can't stay that for too long. And so in 1870, Barnum, who's now 60 years old, decides, you know what? I'm going to combine all of my ideas to form a traveling attraction. Before this time, Barnum was based solely in New York City. You know, he had his theater. The audience came to him. But he's like, you know what? My name has gotten so big and so anonymous, synonymous, maybe I could do something with it. Now, to be fair, this is actually started by Dan Castillo and William Koo. Uh, William Koo, they're based in Wisconsin. They have a lot of success with a traveling show around the Great Lakes region. They go to Milwaukee, Chicago, places like that. 
Uh, they do have some menagerie stuff, some animal acts. The main thing they want is Barnum's name. Pretty much, they're the ones who come up with this idea. They say Mar Barnum's name has some weight, has some heft, has some name recognition. They also maybe want some of his know-how, you know, some of his skills with uh, selling stuff. And so they want him to join the Enterprise. And so this is pretty much what happened. They, they bring him on as a partner. They have his name, which is a big thing. And what they concoct combines everything one could imagine. There's menageries, there's circuses, there's freak shows, there's everything you could imagine. Uh, if you go over one slide, you will see uh, a picture of this. It's Barnum and Bailey's Greatest Show on Earth. I love that title, The Greatest Show on Earth. I mean, look at that. You know, first time in America. Matt Olympium, Diwali's new novel act, Most Wonderful Horses, and the greatest acting dogs ever seen combined in a performance and peerless perfection. Um, I guarantee you that's not what it looked like. That is amazing, though. Look at all those dogs. There's dogs doing cartwheels. There's a dog bouncing on top of a horse. There's dogs in the wheels. I just feel bad for those dogs. That just looks mean. There's a, a Pegasus, it looks like. I guarantee you if there was a horse with wings, it did not look that good. Yeah, th this art is just amazing. Just give you an idea of the sheer um, audacity of it all. Now, in 1881, uh, they merged with another circus managed by a guy named Bailey, uh, which forms Barnum and Bailey Circus. Uh, as, like you said, the picture there uh, actually says Barnum and Bailey's Greatest Show on Earth, basically because ba Barnum has such the name recognition. Barnum and Bailey are together. Um, another picture you have there. Oh, my gosh. I love this animal picture. You see all these animals at glance, the greatest ethnological congress of curious light animals in the world, Colossus Menagerie Tent. You see all these exotic animals. Not only that, you see exotic people, you know, doing their exotic dances. It looks like you got some African people there, some Russian people, some whirling dervishes from Turkey, you know, some Native Americans, this whole thing. You know, you can come see the greatest show. Doesn't matter where you're from, your class, it's big. Now, ironically, after Barnum and Bailey's death, they're going to be uh, bought out by the Ringling Brothers in 1907. This is just interesting. So the com if you go over one more thing, you're going to see the Ringling Brothers. There are five of them. Uh, what this combines to make is the <laughs> Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, which is the long name. Um, even though pretty much the guys are dead, their name st still has value. Actually, up until recently, uh, the circus that toured, was the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus that stopped touring a year or two ago. But pretty much that name still had weight several years afterwards. Like, that is just crazy. So what is unique about this circus? What makes this circus uniquely American? Well, there's a couple things that I want you to focus upon. Number one is the way it comes to town. It comes to town via the train. Trains, I could go on and on about trains. I'm not. But trains are a very American thing of the 19th century. That probably, trains are to the 19th century what cars are to the 20th century in America. It has a huge impact on the American landscape. You know, trains can go to towns which are otherwise inaccessible. It allows Americans on the frontier to feel more connection to the country. It's the idea that, you know what, America is coming to us, even though we're in America, like the rest of America is coming to us. And it does offer a variety of acts. Like, this is a clear smorgasbord of all sorts of different animals, all sorts of different acts. You know, even if you might not like one act, just wait a few minutes, you're going to get another one. It's that golden corral approach. It's that approach with, you know what, you're going to get a lot of stuff. You may not like it all, but you're going to like it. Also, things like freaks 
If you go over uh, to the Barman Bailey's Freaks, uh, Freaks really help emphasize a standard of normality. What is, you know, basically considered quote-unquote normal. This is what normal looks like. Uh, most of the freaks, quote-unquote, are, a lot of them have just, like, physical deformities. Some of them are, like, birth defects. Uh, genetic conditions. A lot of them are just non-white people, just people who aren't white. That is considered freakish. Uh, some of them are victims of warfare, like, you know, disfigured people who are just victims of warfare. Uh, for instance, um, you know, heavily tattooed or pierced people were early attractions. Now, some of their decorum might have been cultural or religious. You know, people from uh, South Pacific Islands, getting tattoos is a very cultural thing. There are some religions which are very big on having tattoos. But Bailey uh, and Barman Bailey really promoted this as savagery. Kind of promoted the idea that this is savagery. This is something that is, you know, it's not because they choose this. It just shows their sheer savageness. Uh, early freak shows played upon fear, you know, like see this terrifying feature, really play that they were, um, you know, just like inhuman or something greater, uh, not greater, but something, you know, abhorrent or monstrous. Uh, in time, once science uh, explained some of their abnormalities, uh, some of them became viewed as objects of pity. You know, objects was like, oh, I just feel kind of sorry for them. Uh, in time, uh, these sort of freak shows became illegal and actually became looked down upon to use people in such a way. Uh, weirdly enough, some of the people who resisted these new laws were the freaks themselves, uh, who claimed that they might not otherwise have a job uh, had it not been for these shows. Uh, if you look at the picture, you're going to see all sorts of different freaks, a lot of different genetic conditions. You know, some of them are just very skinny, some of them are missing limbs, some are very double jointed. Um, a lot of little people, a lot of very large people. There are a couple of albinos. That, uh, ladies with saxophones. I'm not sure how that's a freak show thing, but okay, a lady with a saxophone. You know, something like the bearded lady. If you go over one more, you know, a bearded lady is just basically a woman who produces a lot of hairs. That happens sometimes. Uh, doesn't make you any less of a woman or anything. I mean, it's just a hormonal thing. Sometimes it happens. It really doesn't mean anything. I mean, you might hear of a of the quote-unquote Mexican wolfmen, which is basically they have a genetic condition which makes a lot of hair grow all over their face and body. Uh, doesn't make them any less of a human being, but it's something that's just seen as different. And it also really helps to assert a certain standard of acceptability for a culture of a whole, and also what is acceptable in America. You know, if you look at some of these other advertisements, I have a lot of these advertisements of the Barnum and Bailey Circus, of the idea that, you know, we're going to show all these people. Uh, if you look at the picture of all the different people from different countries, you know, it's asserting this is what's foreign. You know, Africans, Russians, whirling dervishes, scimitars. You know, this is Native Americans. This is different. This is not quote-unquote normal. If you go to the last picture, you're going to see that train, which, oh man, I love the idea of the trains coming through it. Now remember, it's not just playing to a very broad audience base but also to a lot of different choices, the Golden Corral approach. Additionally, it affirms social norms from a very certain viewpoint. Barnum is pushing a very clear viewpoint with his shows. You may just come to get a certain viewpoint, but you also get a very certain message behind it. The union is good. Drinking is bad. Spiritualism is very bad. 
Although it is theoretically just crass entertainment, circuses, particularly Bailey, Barnum and Bailey, and Barnum in particular, is pushing a viewpoint of what is and isn't acceptable for public behavior. Uh, for instance, uh, let's talk exotic dancing, okay? Now, Barnum is no stranger to hiring uh, dancers to put on quote-unquote tantalizing displays. Uh, this was not burlesque, though. Um, even though it was typically female dancers, uh, it made the female form viewed as exotic, but particularly the non-white female form, but also asserted that nudity, even tasteful quote-unquote nudity, is not for public consumption. This is different from Europe, where circuses in Europe are those who had dancers. Even though it's family entertainment, might have a little bit more nudity. But like Bailey, Barnum is pushing, not Bailey, Bailey doesn't get too involved with this, but Barnum is really per pushing a certain form of morality in this entertainment. Uh, probably the best modern example I can think of, and if you want to YouTube this, if you haven't heard of this, uh, if you ever go to like Pigeon Forge, I actually think it's in, um, I want to say it's in Branson too, it's probably certainly in, um, oh God, what's that place? Uh, Pebble Beach, Pebble Beach, South Carolina. Not Pebble Beach, sorry, Myrtle Beach. Pebble Beach is a golf course. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Dolly Parton's Dixie Stampede. If you haven't had a chance to look at Dolly Parton's Dixie Stampede, it is the closest we get to the, well, Wild West show, which we're going to talk about next week, but also the uh, P.T. Barnum Morality Entertainment. It's basically, it's a dinner theater. You know, they have trick writing. They have all these different shows. But at the end, you know, it, it's, it's weirdly done, actually. It's like, oh, we're a friendly competition between North and South, which I'm, I'm not going there. But at the end, it's like, you know, it doesn't matter if the North wins or the South wins. Who really wins is America. And then this whole patriotic thing comes on. And it's like, you know what? What Dolly Parton's Dixie Stampede is doing is really pushing this particular view of America, pushing patriotism, things like that. This is also demonstrating how culture can be tied to technology. Um, trains. The train is central to the classic narrative of the circus. Um, a person that I used to ride the bus with, a girl I used to ride the bus with to and from school, like middle school and high school, she ultimately became a makeup um, artist for the circus. And she lived on a train pretty much her entire career until the circus went away. She literally lived on a train. Even to this day, the train is central to the circus's whole thing. It's the circus train coming to town. Now, this is showing how the train doesn't bring just goods and services, but it also brings culture and connection to the United States. The train has a culture of its own, but it also brings culture to America. It doesn't just bring good and, goods and services. It brings culture. It brings connection. And that's the thing I want you to think of. You know, technology is going to really be a really big underlying uh, concept of this class. And it's really shown in something like the circus. So that's what I want you to think about as you think about your discussion. Show how this kind of meshes with the menagerie. Show how this meshes with Shakespeare, about how kind of America is taking entertainment from Europe and then kind of Americanizing it. So although the circus is known for bringing the world to America and connecting the frontier, what happens when the American frontier itself becomes the attraction? And next class, we're going to talk about an American form of entertainment where the star attraction is an America itself that is untouched by outsiders. And with that, that's Dr. Tully. Hope you have a good one.